BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, it is that time again for Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer, and this week we continue our series of conversations with 2020 presidential candidates. And I'm Marisa Lagos. This week on The Breakdown, we are delighted to have former tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang joining us. He is in town this week, along with a dozen other presidential wannabes for the DNC summer convention in San Francisco. We might even be giving him summer weather for once. We might. It's going to hit the 70s, I think. We're going to be talking with him not about the weather, but why he's running and an idea that he's been pushing. It's called Universal Basic Income, or as they like to call it, the Freedom Dividend. Or UBI, if you're in the know, apparently. Yeah, or FD, maybe Freedom (laughs) Dividend. Anyway, we'll hear the history of that, perhaps. But first, Marisa, it has been a pretty big week in Sacramento, given that it is August. They're back. Uh, Yep, they're back. Governor Gavin Newsom signing Assembly Bill 392, uh, this has gotten a lot of attention uh, over the last couple of years, really. It establishes new criteria for police use of force. Uh, it's being called the Stefan Clark Law by backers, and that's, of course, a reference to the young black man who was shot and killed by police in Sacramento who mistook his cell phone for a gun. In his grandmother's backyard, and- causing a lot of uh, consternation and... Um, You know, I think this is an interesting bill because where they ended up was so different. Last year, it didn't make it out. There was so much opposition from the police. This year, a deal was cut. It doesn't go as far as some advocates wanted. um, But it it actually paired with another bill that the police unions had pushed and the police chiefs, which is going to provide more money and training for police officers. And I think, ironically, that may end up being the bigger difference because that training is needed, right? It, it is. And, and I think as a lot of people, including the, the author of the bill, Shirley Weber, acknowledged, and Daryl Steinberg, the former, the now mayor of Sacramento, this bill, if it had been in place, wouldn't have stopped the shooting necessarily of Stephen Clark. But like you say, it is the training, the de-escalation right. uh, training that a lot of officers don't have that so help that's avoid the, these right. kinds and of things. And that's the front end. I think the yeah. back end, what's going to be really fascinating to watch is how prosecutors respond to this bill. Because really so much about these questions over whether uh, uh, you know a shooting is justified or necessary, as the wording is in the bill, are subjective. And and I think that you know you do have a long history of law enforcement not being super excited about prosecuting law enforcement and feeling, even in cases like we've seen in San Francisco where the DA did want to be able to file charges, that they didn't know that if they could sustain them in court. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, uh, that, of course, will be playing out. It takes effect uh, in... January. And interesting thing Katie or our colleague in Sacramento uh, reported, which is this feeling by the bill's author, Shirley Weber, that she was actually glad it took another year because she wasn't sure the previous governor would have signed it. Yeah, a little uh, little jab at Jerry Brown. Uh, and there are 
other bills that uh, the legislature is sending to this governor that uh, he vetoed or wouldn't have signed. So that is one of them. Um, also this week, Gavin Newsom uh, playing a little bit of uh, uh, back and forth with Donald Trump over auto emission standards. Uh, of course, Trump was trying to undo the regulation, the tougher air standards California has had for decades since, I think, Richard Nixon. Uh, Trump basically trying to get the automakers to loosen, loosen up those standards for auto emissions. And the automakers are saying, no, you know, actually, it works better for us to have the, the tougher standard, one standard across the country. So there's right, four, so four automakers have signed on to that. And Trump, I guess, is furious and trying to stop the others, GM and Toyota, from joining that uh, group that's uh, yeah, I mean, now in I, line with California. You know, I think that we didn't necessarily on the show pay a ton of attention to this, but it was a huge coup for the Newsom administration to get these four large automakers to sign on and agree to something. I think it speaks to the bizarreness in some ways of what the Trump administration has done when you have an industry actually saying, we don't want you to roll these back entirely, maybe loosen them a little. Um, and, it, and, it, and it has really set up this interesting situation with sort of the question. I mean, in the coverage of this, there was this question over whether they decided to do in a smaller group with just these four to begin with because they wanted to cut the deal. And now they're trying to bring other folks along. And it seems like, as usual, there's chaos in the White House because so many people have left around this that they have apparently a 29 year old. Negotiating. Guy, negotiating. Nothing it. against 29-year-olds, <laughs> but yes. Uh, and, you know, of course, the big the big 800-pound gorilla in some ways is GM. They haven't yet joined this coalition. Right. Uh, Toyota as well. And I'm sure the Trump administration is offering incentives and st carrots and sticks, shall we say, right. for them not to do that. I do think, though, like, as you look at the sort of ongoing back and forth between California and the Trump White House, the 50 lawsuits that have been filed, um, again, this was, like, the biggest sort of clear political win I think we've seen recently and it, it because so many of these other battles are playing out in court and they're sort of stilted you know you get a win you get a loss you, you know it, it and who knows where it ends up um well when. i think it's also f a f pretty clear winner uh, unlike some policy matters where there's kind of some gray area you know i think this one is good for the environment it's right on the merits and the politics of course here in california and increasingly across the country where more and more people care about climate change it's uh, definitely a winner all right we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to be joined by democratic presidential candidate andrew Yang. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love. 
while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos, coming to you this week from downtown San Francisco, where the Democratic National Committee is holding its summer meeting this week and weekend. And among those who will be speaking is our guest, presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Welcome to The Breakdown. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming So, uh, you know, it's no surprise that people like Bernie Sanders and maybe Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren are running for president. You know, some people were surprised. A lot of people hadn't heard of you before. Tell us about your decision to run. What Was, was there a moment where you thought, I'm going to do this? The moment began when Donald Trump won. I'd spent the last seven years running an organization that helped create several thousand jobs in Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis, Birmingham, New Orleans. And I had the sinking feeling that my work was pouring water into a bathtub that had a giant hole ripped in the bottom, mm -hmm. that for every job I was helping to create, we were losing tens or hundreds due to technology and automation. I'm convinced the reason why Donald Trump's our president is that we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in all the swing states, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa. And we're sitting here in San Francisco, all the folks who work in technology know that what we did to those jobs, we are now doing to the retail jobs, the call center jobs, the fast food jobs, the truck driving jobs, and on and on throughout our economy. And my country, our country, did not seem to understand this. Uh, we were scapegoating immigrants for something that immigrants have no nothing to do with. And Blaming uh, them for taking jobs. Yeah, blaming them for taking a job. If you go to a factory, it's not wall-to-wall -wall immigrants. It's wall-to-wall -wall robots and machines. Right. <laughs> and so realizing that no one was going to make this case the American people and that uh, the trends were only going to accelerate, I decided to run for president. Was your wife surprised? I know you guys have three and six-year-old kids, which are my kids' ages, and that's exhausting in itself. <laughs> I, um, I think my wife was initially skeptical, <laughs> I suppose. Because like you said, Scott, it's not like anyone was out there being like, is Andrew Yang going to run right. for president? Well, I remember when Jimmy, Carter, like, the heck is Andrew Yang? when Jimmy Carter told his mother he was running for president, she said, president of what? <laughs> Yeah, I, I got that question several times when I was telling uh, people. Though not my wife, happily. She knew what I was talking about. <laughs> so we want to go back and talk a little bit about um, your life and kind of where you came from. You're 44 years old. You were born in upstate New York in a place I'm not going to try to pronounce. Schenectady. 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 I know. But I'm from California. So. But my parents met at UC Berkeley. Okay. And my brother's named after the Lawrence Observatory. So oh, I, I actually have some roots here. And they were both immigrants. Did they come here for college? Yeah, they came here for graduate school okay. and college. Uh, my father got his PhD in physics from Berkeley, and my mother got her master's in math and statistics from Berkeley. So growing up, I mean, it, was, it sounds like they're on the, the STEM path, so to speak, was, was What's politics. What's that? You're suggesting I was very nerdy, and no one <laughs> no. thought I was ever going to go Yeah, I mean, that's very accurate. Sure. Did, and that, I, I assume, like, that academia was really stressed at home. Was politics something that was part of the conversation? Academia is essentially the family business. Okay. Uh, my brother's a professor at NYU. My father is now a retired professor. My uncle uh, is, is a professor. My grandfather is a professor. It's a very academic family. You had, you had a very good education. I think you went to uh, Phillips Exeter Academy. You went to Brown. You went to uh, Columbia Law School. Um, does that, do you think, that's an elite, that's sort of an elite kind of education. Does that, did that help you? Does it hurt you when, when you're trying to connect with ordinary voters, would you say? Well, I'm laser focused on the problems that got Donald Trump elected, uh, which is, again, that we blasted away 
millions of manufacturing jobs and now 30% of malls and stores are going to close because Amazon's soaking up another $20 billion in commerce every year and paying zero in taxes. Voters have a sense of who I am, what my priorities are. I find that voters do not expect you to be anyone other than who you are. So you went to school, you became a corporate lawyer very briefly, I think. Yeah, five whole months. Five whole months. What, Longest what? months of my life. <laughs> why, why didn't you like that? Like, what, what made you pick that path and then leave it, I guess? Well, my parents emphasized education, and law school seemed like a thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on the national debate team in high school, so you know it seemed like I, I had uh, a knack for aspects of it. But then actually practicing law, you find yourself having to envision worst-case scenarios. And so I was like, why am I sitting here trying to think of the worst things that can happen? I'd ra- much rather try and make positive things happen than, contra- than draft contracts for the worst. So that, that's, and the other thing is that I felt my brain changing at the law firm. And I said, well, if I don't want to do this forever, I should leave as soon as possible. It's kind of funny that you are uh, your former tech entrepreneur, you're you know, from tech, and yet you're in some ways running against tech and the impact of tech. I mean, how do you square that in your own mind or you know, when you're talking to Silicon Valley, for example? I'm fortunate to be backed by many technologists here in Silicon Valley because when you talk to a technologist and you ask, hey, are you, are we having an impact on the jobs of millions of Americans? Most any technologist would be like, oh, yeah, we are. Software engineer is the number one Mm -hmm. profession of people who donated to my campaign. And there aren't that many software engineers in the United States. So, I mean, it, it tells you something. The other top professions are teacher, driver, retail worker and warehouse fulfillment worker. So people get it at every point in the spectrum. Do you think that though that that there is a difference between the rank and file, so to speak, and like the CEOs? Because, you know, I think that we do hear different sort of arguments from the people who are actually writing the code than the ones who may be running the companies. Well, the tough part about our system right now is that CEOs are trapped in a set of incentives. And so if they were to say something that was negative for their public companies, PR or something like that, then they, they would get chastised for it. But Amazon essentially came clean just last month. And so they're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on retraining their own workers because they're automating away their own jobs so fast. And so if you reflect on that for just a moment, you think, okay, they might spend millions of dollars retraining their own workers, but are they going to spend an additional set of monies retraining all the people at the malls and stores and, and, <laughs> and other yeah. places that they blast away? Of course not. And being a retail worker is one of the most common jobs in our economy. Uh, the average retail worker is a 39-year-old woman making between 9 and $10 an hour. Who's going to retrain that person? Absolutely nobody. Do you find that the, that is more of a concern out on the campaign trail or you know, versus, say, things like privacy and you know, data breaches, uh, which in some ways can affect people more directly, more quickly, like immediately? People care much, much more about the fact their Main Street stores are closing than the fact that their data might be getting sold and resold. Most Americans are creatures of convenience, where if it doesn't actively make their life worse uh, in some way, like their stuff's getting hacked or their identity is getting pirated, (laughs) then that's obviously a massive inconvenience. But short of of that, they just look up and say, why are all my retailers closing their jobs? Uh, Why did my local mall just close and now has become a blighted ghost mall and a sinkhole for property value? I mean, those are real concerns for Americans. Privacy is, for better or for worse, not front and center. In case you joined us late, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. We're talking to former tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang. He's a Democratic presidential candidate in 2020. Let's talk UBI. 
Let's talk UBI, <laughs> Freedom Dividend, um, or as others call it, I think, the Universal Basic Income. Talk about this concept. You've, you've really made it front and center in your campaign. How, how would it work, and you know, what's the rationale for it? Oh, universal basic income is a policy where everyone in a society, in this case, every citizen of the United States, gets a certain amount of money free and clear to do whatever you want to meet your basic needs. And while this seems futuristic to some, it's actually a deeply American idea embedded in our history. Thomas Paine was for it at the country's founding, called it the citizen's dividend. Martin Luther King fought for it in the 60s, called it the guaranteed minimum income. And it is what he was fighting for when he was assassinated in 1968. A thousand economists, including Milton Friedman, endorsed it in the 60s and 70s. Nixon proposed it, and it passed the U.S. House of Representatives twice in 1971. It was called the Family Assistance Plan. How much was it then? Uh, it was approximately uh, $20,000 for the average family, okay. uh, if you extrapolate to today's right. money. So your proposal is a little less than that, right? It's a grand amount? Well, it's 12000 for individuals. So if you had two okay. adults in a household, it would be 24000 And is it sort of like modeled after like the oil dividend that people in Alaska get? I mean, what's the, is there a model for it that exists already other than ones that have been talked about in the past? Uh, Alaska is a fantastic uh, example where in the early 80s, they passed a petroleum dividend and now everyone in the state gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. What I've been going around saying to the people uh, I've met with is that technology is the oil of the 21st century. Our data is now more valuable than oil. And that doesn't even include autonomous vehicles, AI, software, uh, and on and on, robotics, Internet of Things. So we're producing this immense value. And how much are the American people going to see of it? Zero. Because if Amazon spends billions of dollars on AI and becomes more efficient, they pay zero in taxes. The American people are going to see zero. Google pushes its earnings through Ireland, and the American people see zero. We're in a very tough trap right now because the big winners of the 21st century economy essentially will not put value back into society. And if we don't change that, then we're going to be stuck in this cycle that we're in right now where we look around, wonder where the jobs went, wonder where the money went. We start turning on each other. We vote for Donald Trump. But, you know, $1,000 a month, you know, some people are going to see it as, well, it's just like you're paying people not to work, you know, and which is not really the ethics of our country in a lot of ways. Um, but on the other hand, you can't really live on that much money. So, like, what what, what do you see? It's supplementing people's income in a you know while they're working a job that maybe is less than they would have made before they got laid off, you know, because of technology. I mean, what's the rationale for it? A thousand dollars a month would be a game changer for tens of millions of American families. Again, if you have two adults in the household, it's twenty four thousand dollars a year. That might mean that one of you spends more time with the kids. It might mean that. You're able to take care of a sick relative. It would mean more arts, creativity, music, entrepreneurship, risk-taking, create millions of jobs in our economy. And uh, it, it's, I mean, here in San Francisco, 1000 a month might not sound that dramatic, but if you go to just about every other, like Buffalo, if you go to Buffalo and $1,000 a month, this would make people stronger, healthier, mentally healthier, it would increase graduation rates. One of the biggest misconceptions about it is that chicken it's somehow, wings too, by the way. yeah, some some good wings on a thousand bucks a month. But the biggest misconception about it is that it somehow mitigates or reduces work. It's actually the opposite. It would reward and recognize the kind of work that my wife does. Uh, and Marisa, you said you have a six and three year old. 
I was off the trail taking care of my kids for a couple of days. And you know what I, I said after two days? It was harder. Get me back on yeah, the trail. Right? Yeah, right. So, <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, so the sort of work that my wife does, uh, and one of our boys is autistic too, so he has special oh, wow. needs. And, and so uh, he's a, a, a lot of work. So it actually expands what we think of as work and creates much more work. It creates over 2 million new jobs in the economy because when people have money to spend, they're going to spend it in their local communities. So... What I hear a lot, for example, with the free college tuition is like, well, why would we give that to people who don't need it? You've sort of talked about that. What about on the other end of the spectrum? I know you said in your platform that, you know, you could choose between a welfare program and UBI. Why make force people to make that choice? It's not as if people who are already on government assistance are living high on the hog, right? I mean, we're talking about a couple hundred dollars a month, for example, per kid in California if you're on CalWORKs. I talked to someone who is on disability, and one of the frustrations they had is that uh, they can't even volunteer in their community because if they show that they're able-bodied, then all of a sudden uh, they get their benefits taken away. And that there, there are different types of programs that we administer right now that unfortunately carry those incentives where we're going to say, okay, you get this, but... Uh, if you walk outside of the line. And they live in fear because right. it's in many cases their sole source of income and support. And so uh, there are certainly there are people who are going to be uh, better served under their current programs because of the, the way they're set up. But for a lot of people, they would love an unconditional dividend of $1,000 a month with no administration, no monitoring, no case managers, no reporting requirements, no uncertainty. Mm-hmm. That is The uncertainty is actually a, a really debilitating aspect of our current programs. They're actually trying something like that in Stockton. Mm-hmm. The mayor, they're doing this very limited pilot project, a month, yeah. 500 a month. And this is where it gets embarrassing. It's like they're doing it in Stockton, but if you look into it, that's funded by private philanthropy. Mm-hmm. We are so far gone as a country right now that it takes a handful of rich people to like start giving people money to get the data. In the 60s, when we were do- looking at doing this as a country, you know what the federal government did? Started giving money to thousands of American citizens just to see what would happen. That's the kind of thing that the public needs to be leading on instead of essentially ceding it to private individuals. And I'm friends with some of these individuals. They're, they're above average in that a lot of rich people are not giving their money to total strangers just to see what would happen. So I like these people, but, <laughs> but, but still it's embarrassing that we're so far gone as a society that a public function is being uh, served by private individuals. Well, that gets me to another issue that's really been, a, I think, a big topic of a discussion for Democrats, which is Medicare for all. And I think you hit on something there, though, that they're like, yes, the, you have the, these philanthropically minded people, but there's also this enormous distrust um, of government among, I think, a wide swath, regardless of ideology. And I'm just curious, like, what are what are you hearing on the campaign trail when you talk about that part of your platform? And, you know, because it's so much something that, has really changed dramatically in the last 10 years in terms of where Democrats are at around health care. Well, this is one reason why the Alaska example is so helpful. That mm-hmm. This was a deeply conservative state with a Republican governor that passed the dividend because the dividend is actually not big government. It's small government. The argument that the Republican governor made was, who would you rather get the oil money, the government who's just going to screw it up somehow, or you, the people of Alaska? So by putting money directly into people's hands, we empower people to actually serve their own needs, solve their own problems, make their own decisions. On the healthcare front, 
right now we're being held captive by a bunch of private profiteering interests, the device companies, the drug companies, the insurance companies. And we're all looking up being like, why does our healthcare just get more and more expensive all the time? Uh, and we're spending twice as much as other countries to worse results. And speaking of navigating confusing bureaucracies, I mean. Yeah, like... when, you know, the biggest argument for uh, changing our healthcare system is when people go abroad and they have to interact with the healthcare system in another country, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, it's like a dream. It was, it was inexpensive and seamless, and there wasn't this crazy maze of forms for me to fill out." I want to uh, change gears a little bit here. You, we've talked about your kids a couple times, and uh, there was a, a moment on the campaign trail a few weeks ago. Uh, you were talking. This is just, I think, after the the El Paso and Dayton shootings, and there was a mother who stood up, and uh, I think her child had been killed by a stray bullet and you started crying and went over to her and hugged her and I was just wondering like what was happening for you in that moment because you know so often candidates for president they're not trained to be out there emotionally like that uh, you know what, what yeah, kind like of, that authenticity can be dangerous uh, yeah you know? yeah I mean it's yeah especially more so for some candidates and others that's a whole other conversation but you know what like what kind of feedback did you get like what was that moment like for you well, I'm kind of an accidental politician, and uh, I, I obviously have not been in government for years or decades, and so I've reacted to that story the way I think most parents would react and most humans would react. I mean, the story was horrific and tragic, and I genuinely envisioned for just a moment uh, what that would mean to my family. Uh, there's no coming back from that kind of thing. Even thinking about it now, it, it, uh, it, it's... Um, difficult. And then I think, well, if it's hard for me to think about, imagine living it. Um, so that the, all of that went through my head in that very brief period of time. And then I reacted like I think a lot of Americans would have. Did you get, I mean, what was the feedback? Because I feel like there, there's actually a hunger among some voters for that type of authenticity. Yeah, what's interesting, Marisa, is not like you could ever uh, prepare yourself for the process of running for president. I mean, you put yourself out there and uh, try and present a vision of a trickle-up economy that you think will help people's lives. And then you're introduced to Americans who've suffered in, in incredible ways. And uh, Mina, I, I certainly um, have learned a lot in this journey. I hope Americans end up learning something about uh, their candidates really over time, because I agree with you, Scott, that if you're a professional politician, you kind of get armored up or hardened up mm -hmm. for a lot of these things and then you are simulating behaviors uh, it's very unfortunate i mean I, i'm friendly with the other politicians on the trail and i like most of them um, but they have become sort of instruments or automatons uh, because they're so used to being in on camera and in the public eye and if they misstep then it's a career ender uh, and so you end up with guardrails around your behavior. There's been some criticism of this campaign in the sense that some Democrats are turning on each other. And like we saw Kamala Harris go after Joe Biden. Um, you know, we're, people are waiting for Bernie Sanders to go after Elizabeth Warren. That hasn't happened yet. But you know, what, what's your take on the process? Uh, you have been on the stage for all the debates and you're one of the 10, maybe now 11, if uh, one of the others qualifies for the September debate. Like, what's your take on the process? Is this a, a good way to elect a president? I think it's incredibly bizarre, honestly, and I called it out at the last debate where I said I have makeup on and we have these rehearsed attack lines and there's this reality TV show that's going to choose who our leader is going to be. It's very uh, unseemly. I think it's, it's not ideal at all. And if you trace my campaign, 
you'll see that we rose to prominence because I sat down for long form interviews mm -hmm. on the internet, like this one. Yeah, uh, you like for, podcasts. We, yeah. like, we like that you like podcasts. For 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, because the idea is that I'm presenting that we're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution and it gave us Donald Trump and we need to start evolving and advancing. That stuff does not translate well to a 30 or 60 second soundbite in <laughs> like the, yeah. the, the debate format. Um, so I think that right now our process is incredibly destructive because it rules out many, many people who uh, could serve and contribute. It rewards very bad behavior. When I was preparing for the last debate, we could see very plainly who was going to attack who, uh, what the, the incentives are. And you notice no one ever attacks anyone below them. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? No, like no one's like plotting. Frankly, no one's plotting to attack me for this reason. Because <laughs> you know, it's like, that could like, change. Yeah. I mean, as soon as I become a front runner, then they'll be like, oh, that Andrew guy. You hear about that thing he did in the 90s? Right. <laughs> Which is going to be tricky for me because I wasn't in public off the 90s. So I'll have to, yeah, have to, <laughs> I'm a little in that. But, uh, you know, I, they'd, they'd, they'd have to go pretty deep. <laughs> but, uh, but unfortunately, that's what the incentives are, uh, you know, and it's, it's about, and Kamala's attacks on, on Biden in the first debate. They worked out for her temporarily, but she did raise a, a ton of money uh, mm -hmm. on the backs of that. And so if you were in a Hail Mary position as a candidate, then you're like, well, who am I going to stick it to? And then you look at the front runners and think, OK, I'm going to choose one of them. Right. So go ahead. You wanted to jump in. Oh, oh I was, well, OK. We're, we're, we're short on time, right? We have like oh, that's too bad. It's so much fun. I know. But, you know, you have a lot of ideas. Oh, my gosh. Like a lot so of like, more than Elizabeth Warren, perhaps. Uh, and many of them, are, most of them are all of them are very substantive. But we want to ask you about a couple that sure. we thought were kind of interesting. One, uh, free marriage counseling. How would that work? What's the thinking there? So I'm happily married, and we have two two young kids. Just want to put that out there? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Make that Don't clear. Get in trouble. <laughs> uh, the data clearly shows that kids who grow up in two parent households are more likely to experience certain positive outcomes uh, than those who who are raised in single parent households. So if you have two individuals who are looking to stay together it actually makes perfect sense to try and keep them together um, if that's something that, you know, they both want and, and uh, you know, we can help make happen. It's not to say that's for everyone, but certainly money should not be the barrier there. And right. speaking of money, real quick, yeah. why the do you penny. want to get rid of the penny? So the penny costs us an extra, I think it's $25 million a year, and it hurts the environment because you have to extract the copper. Each penny costs more than a penny to produce. Plus, who wants to get trapped behind that person in line? With Not, all the pennies. With all the pennies. You know, like, <laughs> Does that still happen? I feel like everyone's It happened like, to me just the, you know? like the universe sent me that person um, just a few weeks ago. And I was like, Just this to make is your why. point. Did you take pictures? Or? I should have. But I, I think it would have been kind of obnoxious of me to be like, see, see what the penny does. But it hurts the environment. It costs money. Yeah. It would actually speed up our economy to get rid of them. All right. Well, we'll see where that goes. Uh, Andrew Yang, thank you so much for coming in and having a substantive chat with us. Thank Appreciate you. It was too short. Congrats it, on the work you guys do. Thank, thank you. you. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer today is Guy Marzarati. Our engineers are Steve Asragadu and Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 